The Akad and Coca Report, episode 106. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. Michelle Akkad here. This is going to be a solo episode and a little bit different than our usual format. I'm going to... Um, um, this episode is prompted by a couple of things. Uh, first of all, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a thread on social media singing the praises of Jeffrey Rose. And some of you may know that I wrote a book um, about uh, Jeffrey Rose and about his population health uh, theory. The book is called Moving Mountains, a Socratic Challenge to the Theory and Practice of Population Medicine. And so when I saw the thread uh, singing the praise of uh, Jeffrey Rose, I thought, "Uh uh-uh, this needs to be challenged. Uh, This needs to be uh, um, uh, answered. I think uh, Jeffrey Rose's theory is uh, is pretty um, uh, incoherent and and needs to be exposed because it's actually quite influential. Um, So that's one reason. The second reason is um, uh, also a few weeks ago uh, over the, uh, the Christmas holidays, I received a very nice email from a medical student and um, I'd like to read it to you. Um, I, I got his permission to read it, but I'm keeping him anonymous uh, to protect him <laughs> because we know that uh, academic institutions are not havens of um, ideological diversity. Uh, but he, here's, the, here's the email. Here's what he says. He says, Dr. Akkad, I'm cur- currently a second-year medical student, and I just read your book, Moving Mountains. I'm emailing you because I really enjoyed the book. For a little background, when I entered medical school, I had absolutely zero idea about the intensity with which I would be inundated by population health. In my school, there's a parallel curriculum to the basic sciences that deals with these topics. As I listened to my lectures, there was something that strongly bothered me about the topics. I was not opposed to helping underserved people. To the contrary, I applied to medical school partly for this reason, and I still intend to pursue this. But what bothered me was that it seemed that the school was broadening the definition of medicine so far that almost nothing wouldn't fall under the physician's purview. I couldn't put my finger on it, but it was definitely conflicting with my understanding of the role of the physician and what I envisioned my life as a practicing physician would be. Even the constant repetition of, quote, evidence-based medicine, unquote, was bothering me. I felt like they they were teaching me about the evidence pyramid too many times, I became skeptical that there was something else to this, but I didn't know what it was, and no one seemed to question anything, so I dropped it. Recently, I ran into your book, and wow, it has explained so many things. Every chapter, I felt like I, felt like I was learning about the history of this movement that I was never taught in class. Um, and then, you know, he goes on to, to um, summarize what, what he enjoyed from the book, and then he ends by asking me for references about the philosophy of medicine. So I thought that was a very nice email, and I was really gratified that uh, this medical student really um, uh, understood it. Uh, he, he's uh, alert and oriented, as I like to say. Um, he gets it, and, and he understands that the um, uh, there's a very important philosophical component to the mess that we find ourselves in. I mean, from my standpoint, we really uh, healthcare is such a mess because we, we've completely lost and uh, we we misunderstand 
the, the foundation of what medicine is about, right? What, what is it to be a doctor? What does it mean to be a patient? Uh, you know, questions about health and, and so forth are extremely important. They're extremely misunderstood. And, uh, and that's why we are where, where we are. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to talk about um, uh, Jeffrey Rose and his theory of population health. It's a very good uh, departure point to examine these philosophical questions. Um, so today's talk is an adaptation of a talk that I gave uh, a year or two ago um, at the annual meeting of the uh, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. And, and I think it's a good opportunity to uh, talk about these issues. And then maybe uh, from now on, I'll do a series of podcasts about philosophical questions in medicine um, that address some of the, the questions and the points that uh, this medical student makes about evidence-based medicine, about, you know, what the role of the physician, you know, does healthcare, you know, why is it becoming so all-encompassing and so forth um, and so on. So, but we'll start here today with um, Jeffrey Rose and the theory of population health. So, who was, um, uh, well, first of all, the term population health, uh, let's begin there. Uh, if you do a, um, a Medline search, you know, on PubMed or whatever engine you'd like, if you do a Medline search for the term population health, it, it really, it's, it, it's not in the medical literature at all, uh, or virtually it's inexistent, essentially, until the late 1990s. That's when you start seeing, you know, uh, at the beginning, maybe it's a dozen or so uh, papers per year about that use the term population health. And then quickly, the number increases and increases. By the early 2000s, you know, the early noughts, uh, it, it becomes really, it, it's attracting the attention of academia, clearly. And then by 2010, it really skyrockets. I mean, so I have a graph. In fact, I'll have the, um, the slides of this talk on, on the show notes. So if you go on the show notes, you can download the PDF of, uh, of the slides of, of, of the talk here. So you, um, if you're interested, but, but you, you see this graph and then the, the, the term population health in the medical, medical literature really starts to, 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 to skyrocket. It really increases exponentially uh, after that. And as far as, uh, uh, as I'm concerned, the, the, the main reason or the, the, the uh, very important reason why that is, is because in 1992, Jeffrey Rose published his book. He published a book called The Strategy of Preventive Medicine, which summarizes uh, his thought. It's really the culmination of his, uh, his thought over the previous uh, uh, two or three decades. Um, Jeffrey Rose died a year later, unfortunately, it's an un untimely death. He, he died, he was fairly young, I think he was um, in his late 60s at that point. So let me you know, give you some background on Jeffrey Rose. Who was Jeffrey Rose, um, uh, first of all? So he, he was a British cardiovascular epidemiologist. He was born in 1926 and died, as I said, in 1993. Um, and uh, I... Um, I, I consider him the, the architect of the population health movement. As a cardiovascular epidemiologist, he was involved in large international studies of cardiovascular disease in the 1960s and 70s. He was very influential and prominent. You may have uh, heard about these um, studies uh, from back then. One of them was the InterSALT study. It's a large multi-country epidem epidemiological study of um, uh, the impact of you know, diet and alcohol consumption and various things on the uh, the incidence of uh, cardiovascular disease 
So Jeffrey Rose was a was a principal investigator of, of studies like that, and other studies that we will go into in, in just a little bit. Importantly, he had trained under George Pickering in the 1950s. Um, and that's very important because that was extremely influential to the way Jeffrey Rose started to think about health. And so to understand that, let me give you a little bit of, um, of medical history. Um, George Pickering was a very prominent cardiologist in the 1950s in England. Um, and by the way, as an aside, uh, uh, cardiology was really a British specialty until the end of World War II. It, it was really put on the map by, by the British um, starting at the end of the, the 19th century, most famously by James Mackenzie, the, the, the Scottish cardiologist in, in the late 19th century, and then by Thomas Lewis, who was a, a student of, of Mackenzie, uh, who became a very prominent uh, uh, clinician and clinician scientist and cardiologist, you know, focusing on, on cardiology. And George Pickering was a student of Thomas Lewis. And all these guys had written, you know, major textbooks. You know, many people from around the world would go to England, including American um, physicians. So the people who, who we consider the pioneers of American cardiology, like um, Paul Dudley White, uh, you know, would go to England, study under uh, Thomas Lewis and, and George Pickering and then come back to the US and, and so forth. So until World War II, um, England was, uh, or Britain was, uh, was really the major center of uh, cardiology um, um, science, uh, if you will. Um, so Pickering is very important for his interest in hypertension, but also here in particular for the debate that he had um, with another British physician Robert Platt, Lord Robert Platt, who was a very prominent uh, guy also. Um, I think, I, I don't know that he would call himself uh, a nephrologist per se, but, but he had an interest in, in renal disease and hypertension. And Platt and Pickering, starting in the early 1950s all the way into the early 1960s for a period of 10 years, maybe even longer, had an ongoing public debate that played out in the, um, in the pages of The Lancet, uh, the British uh, medical magazine, The Lancet, where they would debate back and forth on the question of, quote, the nature of hypertension. Okay, so, you know, Platt would, would write a letter and, and present some data in The Lancet, and then, you know, a little while later, maybe a couple of years later, Pickering would come back and, uh, and uh, propose a, an uh, opposite view on, on the nature of hypertension, and it would go back and forth, and it was really a fascinating uh, debate. And th the debate was about this. I'm going to summarize the position taken, taken by each, each of these guys. So Platt thought that hypertension is an inherited disorder that follows a Mendelian pattern. Okay, he, he thought about it as a sort of a genetic disease, a trait transmitted by autosomal dominance with variable penetrance. Okay, so that was his position. Uh, and um, Pickering, on the other hand, thought no. He thought that the blood pressure is determined by numerous factors and multiple genes, and that the blood pressure distribution curve is continuous. So wh what does that mean? So to, to illustrate the distinction between these two views about hypertension, Platt's view was that there are two separate, two distinct populations. There's a population of normal people 
and a separate population of people who have the disease, the genetic disease, hypertension. Okay, and he thought that the data that he had supported this view because he would, you know, measure uh, blood pressure in families and family members and whatnot across populations. So, so he had the data that he thought supported uh, his view, and the data essentially was the data where you plot on the x-axis, um, you know, there are essentially distribution curves for blood pressure. So, if if you will, and it'll be easier to see on the um, uh, on the the slides that I will have on the show notes, but he thought that if you if you draw a distribution curve about the blood pressure, say for example the systolic blood pressure, if you put that on the x-axis, then you have a, a a two peaks to the to the distribution curve. You will have a first peak that represents the normal population, okay, and that maybe it centers around let's say 120 a systolic blood pressure of 120 or so, and then you have a separate bell-shaped curve, a separate population, and therefore a second peak that indicates the uh, hypertensive population. And that peak may center maybe around 160 or so, something like that. Of course, the two populations overlap because, uh, you know, according to, to, uh, to Platt, they, it's the, the, um, there's variable penetrance to, to, to the gene, of, uh, to the hypertensive gene, and therefore there's an overlap between the two populations. But nevertheless, he thought for sure that there were two distinct so biologically distinct populations, the hypertensive people and the normal people. Well, Pickering, uh, uh, on the other hand, thought that that's not what the data showed. He thought that the data uh, was, in his mind, conclusive, that there were no, uh, uh, th there was only one peak, there was only one distribution, and, uh, and that hypertension really represent the tail end of that blood pressure distribution curve, okay? So, so, so that, that was Pickering's view, and they debated back and forth, each one showing data, and the data, if you, you know, depending on how you looked at it, you, know, it, you could see two peaks in, it, peaks in the data, or you, you could only see one peak, and so forth. At the end of the day, it's clear that uh, Platt's view was incorrect. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, unlikely, or nobody has found a single, single gene uh, to account for hypertension as an autosomal dominant. Uh, trait. Um, and so it, it seems that Pickering is vindicated, uh, that if you do large studies, which by the way, after the 1960s, doing those large studies became very difficult because uh, treatment for hypertension became very prevalent. So it's been hard to find uh, sort of people and do large studies of uh, the prevalence of hypertension, um, or natural, so to speak, without without the intervention of, of uh, drug treatment. But it seems that the data shows that there is only one peak uh, in the distribution curve of, of the blood pressure. Uh, on the other hand, it's not a, 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 strictly speaking, a normal distribution because it's actually skewed to the right. The, the blood pressure distribution curve is skewed. There's a fatter tail towards the higher number. And, and when that's the case, it's possible that there may be two distinct, you know, population, two distinct, uh, one hiding inside the other, so to speak. But at any rate, this is not so relevant here. What's important is that when Pickering um, honed in on this idea that uh, the blood pressure distribution is continuous, that there's only one peak, and that hypertension represents the tail end of that distribution curve, he was absolutely startled by that. And uh, I'm going to give you a quote here. He said, 
Hypertension is a type of disease not hitherto recognized in medicine, in which the defect is one of degree, not of kind, quantitative, not qualitative, unquote. So that's a quote from, from, um, from Pickering. So he thought this is really remarkable. In medicine, we're always dealing with dichotomies. You know, somebody has TB or does not have TB or somebody has syphilis or doesn't have syphilis or somebody has a myocardial infarction or doesn't have a myocardial infarction or fracture or no fracture or, you know, uh, osteomyelitis or not and so forth. But hypertension, it's clearly a disease. It has complications and symptoms and manifestations and whatnot. But it's one of, it's a quantitative disease because we all have blood pressure. I have blood pressure. You have blood pressure. Everybody has blood pressure. Well, some people have too much of it. And after a certain point, uh, they have too much of it and it becomes a disease. And that's, that's very unusual. And it's a problem because to define hypertension becomes a little bit arbitrary uh, as far as um, you know, the clinician is concerned. You have to decide at what point you're going to treat or at what point you're going to label somebody as uh, hypertensive. And, uh, and this is kind of arbitrary. Uh, but that was Pickering's... Um, uh, insights and, and uh, contribution to the thought of Jeffrey Rose. Jeffrey Rose was studying under Pickering in the 1950s and he uh, credits Pickering for giving him this insight but Jeffrey Rose took that insight and ran away with it essentially completely. So Rose's insight number one that's essentially the pillar of his population health theory is that the distinction between health and disease is always blurry. It's not just for hypertension. It's for absolutely all diseases. So, so he took Pickering's insight on hypertension and then applied it to just about everything. T to make you understand that, I'm going to give you quotes from, from Jeffrey Rose, from his book. So Jeffrey Rose says, disease is nearly always a quantitative rather than a categorical or qualitative phenomenon. And hence, it has no natural definitions. Okay, and then he gives examples of that. Example, infectious diseases in the population come in all sizes, from obvious clinical cases to symptomless infections that are only revealed by special laboratory tests. For example, you know, somebody can have the, the flu virus and have a rip-roaring pneumonia and, and terrible symptoms and be intubated and whatnot. Another person may have a very mild manifestation of it, and another person may have no symptoms whatsoever. And, and it's, it's only after the fact that you realize that they've been expose, exposed to the virus. Okay, so that's example number one. Example number two. The clinical illness recognized as cancer is the infrequent end stage of a series of common changes, beginning with minor cellular abnormalities, metaplasia, and raging through more definite, definitely pre-malignant change, dysplasia, or localized in situ malignancy and localized invasive disease. Okay, so here again, cancer, in terms of cancer, it's a spectrum. There, there, there's, you go from, from health to disease by gradual changes. There's no distinct boundary. Okay, you have minor um, cellular changes that uh, end up not, you know, turning into anything, metaplasia, and then you have dysplasia, then you have cancer in situ, and then you have malignancy and locally, inv locally invasive disease. All right, third example that um, um, uh, Jeffrey Rose gives. Interruption of cerebral blood flow can lead to a whole spectrum of consequences, ranging from none at all 
or symptoms too mild to come to medical attention, through a transient ischemic attack, defined arbitrarily as a stroke that recovers within 24 hours, to a stroke with persistent disability or a dramatic and rapidly fatal illness. Okay, so here, Jeffrey Rose says, look, look at strokes, you can have, you know, ischemia of the brain and have no symptoms at all, or you can have something that is mild and, you know, barely comes to medical attention, you can have something that is more severe but is transient and goes back to normal, or you can have a full-blown stroke, or you can have something that is, you know, where you, your brain herniates and, and you die within, within uh, a few days, okay? So again, no distinction... Uh, no clear distinction between health and disease. There's a transient, a gradual uh, transition. And then to make sure that we take him seriously, uh, he in his book, and I ha I'm going to quote him again here, he goes as far as to say that, you know, one can have a touch of pregnancy uh, in a way. So th this is a quote from, from Jeffrey Rose. Even pregnancy is not defined by nature, but rather it develops in a series of steps from the merely potential parenthesis, a sperm swimming towards an ovum, close parenthesis, through the stages of a fertilized ovum, implantation in the uterus, which is apparently the legal definition of, of uh, pregnancy in, in, in England, to a biochemically detectable pregnancy, and then to a clinically evident pregnancy, and then a recognizably human fetus, and then a viable fetus, and finally a live baby. End quote. All right. So Jeffrey Rose says you can have, apparently, pregnancy is not, you know, it's not that you're either pregnant or you're not. It's all a, a, a matter of, uh, of sort of a gradual transition, you know, between not being pregnant and being pregnant, okay? So that was his insight number one. The, distinc the distinction between health and disease is blurry. His, insights number, no, his insight number two is that when you look at populations, only populations are distinctly sick, okay? So when you look at populations, this is where you can see a, a real distinction between health and disease. And, and here, he looks again at bell-shaped curves, okay? And th the main one that, that uh, he brings up in his most famous paper, uh, and I'll have a link to his most famous paper, it's called uh, Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, okay? That's, uh, it was published in the mid-1980s. He shows a graph where on the same graph, he has the blood pressure distribution on the one hand for Kenyan nomads, Okay, so if you look at the blood pressure distribution for Kenyan nomads, it's a, it's a normal bell-shaped curve centered around 120 millimeters, you know, for the systolic blood pressure, 120 millimeters of mercury, and it's a nice narrow blood pressure distribution. And on the same graph, he puts the blood pressure distribution for London civil servants, because he had been involved in, a, in, in an epidemiological study of uh, London civil servants. We'll get to that in a, mi in a minute. But, but for London, London civil servants, the bell-shaped curve is, is shifted to the right compared to the Kenyan nomads. It centers around 140. It's a broader distribution. And then if you look at these two distributions on a, on a graph, the way he put it, you can clearly see two bell-shaped curves that are distinct from one another. And so for Rose, that's a real distinction, okay? It, 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 if you look at, at individual points, right, they overlap because obviously among civil servants, there would be some civil servants that have a normal blood pressure. And among Kenyans, you may have some Kenyans that have a high blood pressure. But if you look at the blood pressure distribution itself, then there's a clear distinction between the Kenyans who are evidently healthy and the British civil servants who are evidently unhealthy, right? So... 
um, you know, I, I guess we shouldn't we should discount the fact that the the the, <laughs> the life expectancy for the Kenyans is probably uh, uh, you know uh, a third of what it was for the uh, for the British civil servants in those days. But but the point that um, that Rose wanted to make is that the uh, uh, you could see the distinction between health and disease at the population level. Okay, when you look at at graphs like that, and therefore the goal of medicine and you know it will be population medicine is to shift these bell-shaped curves in the direction of health, right? And therefore, to shift the bell-shaped curve of the British civil servants from where it is, you know, with a higher blood pressure, a higher mean blood pressure, and a fatter distribution, more towards what it is for the nomads of the plains of Kenya. All right, so that's that's um, Pickering, uh, I mean, uh, Jeffrey Rose's um, second insight. And... He, he, to him, that was more important than to do what Pickering had advocated, because Pickering had advocated focusing on the the high uh, tail, the tail end of the blood pressure distribution curve. He said, you know, let's look at the people whose blood pressure is really high, or we consider high, no, you know, whatever that that means to be high, you know, whatever arbitrary number we want to pick. Let's focus on these guys, and uh, and and treat those people. No. Um, Jeffrey Rose says, no, that's that's inadequate. I mean, that, that's maybe okay, but really what we want to do is we want to shift the whole blood pressure distribution and make it, quote-unquote, healthier. All right? That's uh, his second insight. And his third insight is that population sickness has its own causes. All right? So the cause, what makes the population have a different bell-shaped curve, right, to, to shift like this, is its own causes that is independent of what causes disease in individual people, all right? And the reason he he um, he came to that conclusion is is by being involved in what's, uh, what was called, or what is called the Whitehall, it's a famous study called the Whitehall Study. So that's a study precisely of British civil servants. It was an a longitudinal epidemiological study of, of uh, British civil servants that took place in the 19, late 1960s to the late 1970s, at least the first phase of it. And so they, they followed, they, they enrolled civil servants in the, in the British system and, and followed them you know, over 10 years to, to see what their uh, cardiovascular risk factors were and what their mor- mortality would be and so forth. And the findings was that the civil servants in the lower status jobs okay, of, of lower socioeconomic status, had poor health habits, right? They smoked more and so forth. They had worse risk factors than those in the higher status jobs. And then they, hi- and they had higher mortality compared to people in the higher rungs of the civil service, okay? But at the same time, access to care for all these people was not a barrier because by then the NHS was instituted. So the NHS had been... Uh, uh, enacted, you know, the, the uh, NHS um, uh, was established, uh, the single-payer system in England was established in the late 1940s, early 1950s. So access to care was not a barrier, was not right for, for health care. So, so he thought that the reason you have these two distinct population, meaning the, the low socioeconomic civil servants versus the high socioeconomic civil servants, to, to, to Jeffrey Rose, that meant that socioeconomic factors were really the cause of disease. They were the cause of why the, uh, uh, the, the civil servants in the lower rungs of the civil service 
smokes more, had worse health habits, had worse outcomes, had worse mortality and so forth than the higher ones. These were, so the, the socioeconomic causes of disease were important. So that's, um, uh, that's uh, where we get the phrase, the social determinants of health. And here's a quote from Jeffrey Rose. He says, the primary determinants of disease are mainly economic and social. And therefore, its remedies must also be economic and social, okay? So that's where we, got, we get the phrase, the social determinants of health. And according to Rose, the cause of disease at the population level is completely distinct from the cause of disease at the individual level, okay? We're, we're talking about a distinct realm of causality, right? And uh, which, which is a little bit strange um if you if you think about it uh, he's really saying that that there's a cause that affects the population and it really has nothing to do with the cause that affects individuals and at the end of the day from this view of jeffrey rose he concludes that medicine and politics cannot and should not be kept apart that's also another quote from jeffrey rose from his book okay so that's the uh uh, the theory of um, of um, uh, population health from Jeffrey Rose with its uh, three insights, you know, leading up to the social determinants of health, um, which are really socioeconomic. And uh, um, interestingly, as we will see, or as, as you, you know, you probably have experienced, for some reason, they don't focus on poverty as being the problem. They focus on inequality, that the social determinants of health is primarily inequality. And not poverty. Why is it not poverty? I don't know. My guess is that if they if they said it was poverty, then they might say, well, let's have more prosperity. Let's have more capitalism because we know that capitalism leads to more more prosperity, and uh, and and material wealth. And no, no, I don't think they don't want to go that way. They just focus on inequality, and they focus on inequality being the cause of disease in population's health, okay? So, so that's the theory. After he published his book, as I mentioned at the beginning of, of the talk, the population health movement was born and really has, has taken off. And it's become, you know, uh, a huge uh, industry. Uh, academic de departments of population health have multiplied, right? Everywhere in the country, internationally, they're in all medical schools have now their, their population health uh, departments. There are graduate programs that offer degrees in population health management uh, there are medical school curricula as we've you know uh, the medical students was telling us that explicitly trained students in population medicine and then private industry there's healthcare industry positions of chief population health officers uh, among uh, uh, health insurance companies uh, that that will have their chief population health officers and and so forth and so it, it's it's really there's a population health mania uh, that's really uh, taken over uh, the, the whole world of medicine. Um, at, at the same time, uh, there's a little trouble looming uh, for the population health movement. Uh, if, you, if you follow that literature, and I, I don't follow it closely, but from time to time I take a peek at, at the medical literature. And there I see things in their journals where they keep, you know, they keep hanging up on that question of what is population health? And I have in my talk, and I, you'll see it on the PDF, a, a series of editorials that were published in the population health magazines uh, or journals that keep asking the questions. You know, one of them in 2003, uh, the title is, what is population health? Question mark. Another one in 2007, 
by David Kindig, who's a, a very prominent, or was, I think he retired, but he was a very prominent proponent of population health. That one is published in the Milbank Quarterly, which is a multidisciplinary journal of population health and health policy. Uh, the title of that, um, uh, that paper is Understanding Population Health Terminology. And because, you know, it's obviously confusing, so he has to, to write an editorial to, to explain what the terms mean. Uh, there's another one in 2014 by David Nash, who's also a very prominent population health uh, guru in the journal Population Health Management. And the subtitle, uh, the title of that piece is Population Health. The subtitle is Where's the Beef? Right. So what, what does it mean or what, what are we talking about? What, what's going on? In 2015, in the Health Affairs blog, again, David King, Kindig writes an editorial or an article where the title of the article is what are we talking about when we talk about population health? So there seems to be an ongoing or pervasive confusion about the terms of population health and the concepts that are used in it. And as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, it, it, it's, um, it's not a surprise because Jeffrey Rose's insights, the three insights that I mentioned are really untenable. His first insight that there's no natural distinction between individual health and disease is untenable. If you read it carefully, it confuses. If you read Rose's, you know Rose's book carefully, he confuses disease with disease severity, with expression of disease, with the variable natural history of disease, with disease risk factors. So, so he's got a lot of a bunch of different concepts that are sort of all put together and and not carefully distinguished, and that's why he sees you know a blurriness and a lack of distinction between health and disease but that lack of distinction is is more in his mind and in the mind of of, of the people who have espoused those ideas than it is in actual reality um, his second insight that only populations are distinctly healthy is wrong uh, i'm not going to go into it today but uh, maybe in a, in a in a subsequent episode we will talk about why the concept of health primarily applies to individuals it cannot apply to population the concept of health applies to individuals, right? So when, when he shows a bell-shaped curve, which he deems to be healthy, he's not looking at the totality of health. He's looking at one, one aspect of things like the blood pressure, for example. So, you know, he may think that the blood pressure of the Kenyans is lower, and that may be tr the case, but that doesn't mean that the, the Kenyans are healthier than the British civil servants, right? So, so, so that this idea that you can... Uh, apply the concept of health primarily to populations is, is completely wrong. And we'll, we'll get into this in a subsequent uh, episode, perhaps. And then the third insight that the causes of disease are political and act on population is clearly long, wrong as well. The causes of disease are biological and personal. They act on individuals. So it, it, it's a total mess as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but I want to, you know, I'm not doing a, a, a full rebuttal here. I'm just uh, introducing you to the to the theory of Jeffrey Rose, and uh, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll let you ponder this. I think it's it's important to be aware of it. It's important to to know that it's actually um, it, it has a, a, a very um, explicit theory because frequently when people mention the term population health, there's an ambiguity because are they when they say population health, do they say well a population is healthy? Because all the individuals in the population are healthy, or you know, are healthier. Uh, no, what what Jeffrey Rose is talking about when he talks about the population health, he's talking about something that is distinct and independent from the health of the individuals. Okay, so this is pretty crazy, uh, but this is what it is. 
And now we're teaching it uh, en masse to medical students, you know, all over the country and all over the world. And, um, and it makes no sense, but that's what it is. <laughs> and I hope you enjoy this episode. So I'm going to stop here. Um, I want to invite you to uh, uh, read Jeffrey Rose. I'll have a link to his book. It's, just, it's a short book. It's written very uh, in a very um, – um, he, he writes well. It's, it's, um, um, uh, it's, it's a vivid prose. I mean, he, he, uh, it, it's entertaining and it's, and it's short. And then you can read my book, which is essentially a, a – uh, it's not a line-by-line refutation, but it, it's actually it is a refutation. And my book is in a dialogue format. I have uh, Socrates, the philosopher Socrates, cross-examine Jeffrey Rose about his population health uh, uh, theory – and so, so they go back and forth, and uh, and you can buy my book uh, uh, without reading Jeffrey Rose's book uh, because it's uh, I, I quote enough of Jeffrey Rose that you get uh, you get a sense of what uh, what his theory was. But but you should read Jeffrey Rose as well, or you should read at least his um, his main paper, "Sick Population and Sick uh, Individuals." And it seems like a very compelling paper when you read about it. But that's why philosophy is so important because you have to really carefully think about certain ideas and certain concepts and the way he introduces them and, and where the flaws are in, in, the, uh, in the reasoning uh, and so forth. But, um, but I'll let you do that. And I thank you for joining me. Um, again, if you enjoy the show, please support us uh, at cardandcoca.com slash support. And uh, that's it. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. akkadandcoca.com.